0: one. Basic Hip Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode four hundred and seventy-two for January fifteenth, twenty nineteen. On today's show, bassist Tim LaFave. Please support the jazz session by becoming a member at patreon.com slash the jazz session. That's patreo dot com slash the jazz session. It's just five bucks a month. Until recently, Tim Lefave was a member of the Tedeschi Trucks Band. He has since moved on from that band very amicably. He and some other members of the Tedeschi Trucks Band formed an improvising ensemble called Whose Hat Is This? Their latest album is Everything's Okay, and it sounds like this. guest is bassist uh producer writer tim lefeve tim it's great to have you on the show
1: jason it's always a pleasure and thank you for having me
0: there is uh so much to talk about in your musical life but let's start with uh, the thing that is kind of most recent which is the new album by whose hat is this it's called everything's okay and uh this is essentially the uh, more or less the rhythm section from the tedeschi trucks band uh just completely improvising a concert that became an album uh it is as i told you before we started recording it is in my heavy rotation it's just it's incredibly fabulous and i guess i wanted to start by just by asking and i know this isn't the first time you guys have done this obviously but how how did you get the idea to to kind of have this this breakaway group that would just do free improv is it something that came about during the the concerts on tour is it during jamming warming up how did it how did it start
1: yeah. I mean, it's, it's a combination of both. Like when we have been touring, you know, like we, we, I think the first time we had the idea to do this, you know, because as you know, I was in the jazz scene before I was in Tedesky trucks, we were in Europe and I like, you know, I knew we were going to be in Berlin for a few days. I was like, so why don't I try to book a gig? And I, so I, I decided to book a gig. and I tried to get some, uh, some of my fellow compatriots, like, you know, Mike, Michael Volney and a bunch of those guys to do it. To just go improvise at the, at the, at the a train. But, uh, it turned out like you know none of those guys were around, so I was like, okay, well, all right, I got these two drummers that I play with all the time and and Keby Williams, and we always jam at soundtrack and and play weird stuff and it, you know at soundtrack with the Tedeschi trucks. so we I booked a gig. I said, let's go let's go just go blow and see what happens and uh, you know, it felt pretty compelling to me, so I decided to kind of keep the group uh, kind of flowing forth and and uh, you know whenever we had the chances to to work. We sort of been doing it, so uh, yeah. And that gig itself
0: became a record, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the first one. Like, yeah. so when you when you said, "Well, it felt pretty compelling to me," like it felt compelling enough to kind of memorialize for all time in the form of a record, which is pretty amazing. Yeah,
1: I mean, I mean, as you know, I don't really have a solo project, you know, and I, I'm always kind of a collaborator anyway. So, I, but I, I like this stuff enough. Where I was like, you know what? Let's put it out. Fuck it, you know. So,
0: and certainly these guys. I mean, uh, you know, uh, they can tackle anything, and I know Kebby, him of course, comes from an improvising background yes. this is not new language in any sense yeah. of the word uh, for him okay. and then there's definitely an x factor in this new record everything's okay um and that's the person who contributes the voice to this will you talk about that
1: yeah kokai um amazing years i mean you know like it's just funny how like you know just stuff got shaped and like uh, i don't know i mean it's like just that magic that happens i mean i you know i kind of felt that connection with him on a bunch of other stuff like you know i knew from doing some gigs with him with uh uh, I knew about him, but uh, this gig, uh, Jason Linder turned me on to him because he used to be in a trio with him. And uh, so, anyway, yeah, we did this gig in Holland, I think, a couple of years ago. At Germany. It was just an all-improvised gig with a bunch of uh, Dutch guys, and it was again the same thing. It's like, dude, this guy's fire. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. And, and basically, um, the first time I put him with Who's Hat, we were in DC. We were playing at the Warner Theater with Tedeschi Trucks, and we had we booked a gig with So Far DC. It's one of those things where, like you know, people. It's a subscription program where they they buy the tickets and they don't necessarily know who they're going to see. And that night it was us. And, and uh Kolkai happened to work upstairs in the Warner Theater. He came down. We chatted. and I was like, "Hey, man, we got a gig Sunday. You want to just come come do it with us?" And 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 it turned out it was like, uh, "Yeah, this is good." <laughs> <laughs> uh, you because know, we had been doing some gigs with you know with with Jeff Taylor and and, it's, and with Jeff, who's also amazing. You know, it's just it's it, it, you know jeff wasn't available that's kind of what the bottom line was but uh but the the, the magic happened with kokai and such a to me it just resonated with me really hard um so you know when we do when we did the, the 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 everything's okay record i mean it's just all this magic happened and i don't even know how it happened you know like he he knows how to give space he doesn't take over so he just you know kokai just you know he'll he'll come up with a theme and kind of riff off what we're doing and we'll riff off what he's doing and you know we even kind of like we kind of caught the tribe called quest thing on the you know near the near the end of the record we were playing uh check the rhymes i think you know i was anyway <laughs> and he just kind of free wheeled over the top it's so it's just great you know just like like and i think you know because it's improvised music can be tough to listen to and i think he made it he definitely makes it more human sounding, you know what I mean? Like, more relatable.
0: Yeah, he is definitely a way in, I would imagine, for, like, into an album like this for people who might not otherwise know exactly how to get into an album like this. I mean, I think there's a lot for everybody in this record. I mean, this record, at least to my ear, it covers pretty much most of the genres that you can play with this instrumentation and and it just feels like everybody has a chance to say unique and creative things but i definitely feel like he is a way is a hook for folks for whom this kind of music is maybe a new experience
1: yeah and you know he, he also sings so like you know we end up with song kind of forms. It's, it's pretty cool
0: In terms of things not being new language, I mean, you mentioned that he works with Jason Linder, wonderful uh, keyboardist and arranger and composer, but he goes back to Steve Colbin too, doesn't he? Am I right? Yes. Thinking about that. Okay.
1: Yep. yep. Tale of uh, Tale of Three Cities. That's All right. Okay. Huge record for me.
0: And just a, a fi- well, maybe not a final, but at least for this uh, little bit here, a final question about Kokai was: Is everything that we're I know for the most part everything we're hearing on the record is what was created live in the moment, except for some of the processing on his voice? Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. And uh, there's processing on a bunch of stuff. It's like I, I, have, uh, I work a lot with this guy named Jeff Stanfield. He's a, a producer-mixer out of Seattle. And uh, I knew immediately that this project was going to him once, once I got the tracks, you know, to have him mix. And, and I said, go nuts, man. Like, uh, So he ended up putting Ear Candy on a bunch of stuff, and it's really kind of cool. It adds to the experience, I think. Yeah, so like, there's definitely some processing on his vocals. There's some processing on Kebby. It's a little bit of bass processing. There's like, you know, he added sounds here and there. He dropped some 808 sounds and stuff and just made it even cooler than it was. You know, I was already freaking out about the performance. And then what he added to it makes it even more complete to me. So, yeah.
0: So what is it like in the moment right before you guys begin playing? I mean, do you have any kind of conversation about let's start in this place? Or, I mean, is it literally like the lights come up and somebody goes? Or how does it work?
1: We never talk about it, honestly. In fact, uh, we we, uh, we we just got off a tour of the Deep South, we, and the last gig was at a friend of mine teaches at University of Alabama. This guy named Chris Kozak is a really good bass player, and he's the I think he's the head of the jazz department there. And so he booked us a, for a workshop and a, and a show. And uh, it turns out the show, <laughs> you can imagine this, like the music appreciation class, we had to, <laughs> was forced to attend. Wow! So, like yeah, this story is it's insane. So. Basically, we start walking on stage like we normally would. And then all of a sudden, Falcon, who's this guy, Tyler Greenwell, uh, he, we start playing. We kind of get through one thing. And, t- and Falcon walks off stage, grabs a mirror, and just starts doing all this performance. <laughs> <laughs> with the mirror. I was like, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, what is going on here? And like, I, you know, we're always somebody always does something shocking every show. But this was like a new level. And then he started calling audience members up and like and, like and making them look in the mirror and confess. And it's just like... <laughs> You know, he's, he's from the Colonel Bruce Hampton school, so like you know, kind of anything goes, and like he'll he'll get on the mic and just start saying crazy shit. And it, that's awesome. It's yeah, it's really it, so. There's also like some kind of humor or or some kind of other like because wasn't on that tour, uh, so so like you know, we kind of filled it up. Soled some of the space was him doing his his antics. He started playing flute at the New Blue gig, and you know he doesn't even play flute. He picked the flute and started playing it. <laughs> uh, it's unbelievable. And man I uh,
0: it's so weird that you just mentioned Colonel Bruce because um I've been listening to a ton of him again recently i, I used to have been to see him a bunch of times back way back in the day like you know, 20 yeah, something yeah. years ago and uh, and always really loved him saw him down south a bunch of times when I lived there and um and then all of a sudden it's I find that in my music listening, I don't know if this happens to you, but there are periods where like I almost forget that some bands exist. And then they'll pop back into my head and I'll remember, oh, my God, I'm in love with this music and I need to get back into it again. And Colonel yeah. Bruce was kind of that way for me. Like I had a very intense period of listening to Aquarium Rescue Unit, his other projects. And then a bunch of years went by and just recently that whole kind of vibe has has kind of come back into my head. And, man, there's just so much good music to be mined in that world. I know. I know. Uh, I know. That's
1: crazy. I know. I had I had a full, I had another. I don't even know what it was. Something came to my head. Something from because I, I was back in the day like you know, ten twenty years ago I was I was really into Pat Metheny off ramp, and uh, I know what it was I, I was playing with Donny McDazzle at Dazzle and just in September they had a for some reason they had vinyl a guy with vinyl on you know as a merch table at Dazzle, uh, and I look I was. You know combing through the, the records, and all of a sudden that showed up. I was like, No, oh, way wow. I'm not buying that. Yeah. shit. <laughs> I love that record so much. That I bought it, and it's, you know. I'm back on that one. That's like 1988. That yeah, man, yeah, that's a good Crazy. album. She loved me, she loved me. Not, I plucked them flowers, made them hot. Really doesn't
0: matter when I had to hit it up. I got another with winning with, with the pull out for Jack Winner. Jump, jot it down on the paper, jot it on the paper when I get the sky, stick it up, up when the sky. I mean, there's no way this interview would have to be 20 hours long to get through all the hats that you wear. But one of them that you have uh, recently put on is a, a producer hat, and you produced an album um, for Rachel Eckroth, uh to whom you we were also married, called "When It Falls," um, a really fabulous album. But I, I wanted to ask, after all the time that you have spent in the studio, did you feel there were particular ways in which you were really ready to to produce? This record, things that you picked up from other people, in all of your time, and thinks, well, this is how I would do it if it were me.
1: Uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely some of that. I mean, you know, you know, obviously with Rudder, with Henry, hey, hey, we did quite a bit of production on those records, so like it, it, it was always a familiar thing, and, and like I always wanted to do something, you know, within reason, where I'm the boss of something, and like you know, like where we can, I can really shape the songs and and, and help things go in a sonic direction i mean i'm not a lyricist but i know when lyrics make sense or don't make sense or 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 too obvious or something like that so i can help out a little bit on that front not not as much as i i need to but but i think on the instrumentation and how a thing should sound and how it should hit somebody i've gotten better at that and uh, you know i'm not i wouldn't call myself an engineer but i know enough now to you know like i'm not a signal path genius but but i know how to make sounds that sound good and and uh kind of uh you know, just a, and and I could get an okay vocal sound here and there. You know, it's just kind of one of those things where you just kind of practice at it. And uh, and so with her, with Rachel's record, it was sort of it was fun because we kind of we had we started tracking initially and like her songs, I thought were great and I love her voice. So like it was that was it was pretty easy. And and we it, it kind of we sailed through it like without any disagreements for the most part too. So you know, it always happens with artist and producer and and uh, boyfriend and girlfriend.
0: Yes. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs>
1: No, we, we, but it was great. And, 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 you know, now she's opening for Rufus Wainwright and, and, um, part of the challenge for her was that, you know, she had to learn, well, she, she had to learn Rufus Wainwright's music, you know, singing. So she's doing a ton of singing and some of the keyboard stuff. And then she had to learn how to play acoustic guitar all for that show. And then she also, because she's the opener also, she had to reimagine her record for solo, you know, cause there's no band with her. It's just, she's doing it all solo. And, um, you know, I've, I've been on Instagram, like, you know, people are putting up videos of her opening set and it's kind of mind blowing, you know, because we'd hear it, we'd be sitting in the in the living room, like listening to, you know, we should be rehearsing it through a, through a keyboard amp in, in the living room in, in our house. And, you know, so like to hear it translated through a big PA at a theater, it's mind blowing. Sounds so good.
0: And in some Crazy. ways, is that is that taking the music back to where it started? I mean, I, I'm i I'm imagining that a lot of that stuff she wrote was well, she was just playing keyboard and singing on her well, own. A right? Sort
1: of, yeah, right. I mean, she did. Yes. Yes, some of it is actually straight up, you know, okay, piano and voice. This is, you know, some of the, the sadder singer or like more songwriting kind of things are like that. But then, you know, the other ones with the beats, you, know, you also have to, because she doesn't have a drummer, but you also don't want it to sound like corny, like, you know, t- beats from like 2000, you know what I mean? Right. Like you you wanted to make it sound like 2018, and that's challenging, you know, because, you know, I mean, again, you know, but I, me and, and her, we don't, we, we're not exposed to a ton of music besides what we like. So like we kind of have horse blinders on, so that's cool. I mean, I'm I'm like a big Nine Inch Nails fan, so like you know, I kind of get my that kind of like electronic beat thing. I get an inspiration from them. So like it's just kind of a matter of making it you know sound 2018 you know what i mean i also love that the date for corny beats that you chose is
0: 2000 like because to me that i'm i mean you and i are about the same age i think and that to me still feels recent which i'm embarrassed about but i'm still like yeah what do you mean 2000 i'm like corny beats that's from like 30 years ago but 2000 is still 20 years ago now so well even even like
1: 2015 beats are considered corny you know right i'm just saying like you know to keep up with the joneses i hear you it's like 22 year old kids with their laptops making these in- insane things, and it's just like, wow, you yeah. know?
0: Let's take a break from the music to talk about how you can support the show. Go to patreon.com slash the jazz session. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the jazz session. For five bucks a month, you get a bonus episode each month. If we reach 100 subscribers, there will be three interviews a month rather than two, as there are now. We're 30% of the way there, which is very exciting. If we make it to 200 subscribers, the jazz session becomes a weekly show. So it's up to you, head to patreon.com slash the jazz session, p-a-t-r-e-o-n slash the jazz session, and show your support today. new and your accent
1: this guy this guy right now trevor powers i don't know if you knew who he, he, had, he had never heard band, of him. Uh, yeah he's got a new record out called um uh, mulberry violence that so just blows my mind like this guy's it's super indie but it's like also that electronica thing it's just nuts i mean you know i'm i'm, I'm really into that kind of glitchy sound right now and yeah
0: so on uh uh, on the who's hat is this uh, kind of in that kind of experience? Besides, there's other two drummers, as you playing bass, um, saxophone. Are there other things that are happening on stage that various of you are taking control of during these sets? Because it sounds like there are other sounds being produced than just the sounds that I need. Uh,
1: what do you mean, like, like in a
0: recorded thing? Yeah, or recorded even in a live play? setting, like are various, Are you guys playing other instruments or samplers, or are you adding other things into the mix kind of during a live?
1: We're starting to yeah uh, no no samples per se but uh, Oh, that's not true yeah actually last tour J.J. Johnson the other drummer uh, he brought out a pad with like claps and like all you know basically like the eight oh eight sound. sure and uh, so that's we're starting to add sounds and and also like everybody the plan is you know as we go along if 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 Koka is not available uh, uh the plan is to everybody to have a little, their own little pedal rack and can process anything on stage you know what I mean oh, so nice. like everybody have an, an input from everybody uh, so like you know. I'll have access to to the saxophone mic, so I can mess with his saxophone mic or the drum mic, you know, like something like that. And everybody will have that chance to do it to everybody. So we, you know, it's kind of like there was one thing. One thing we were doing this week is like uh, I put a reverb pedal on the sax mic, like there's an affected sax mic, and so but but what's cool about it is is that it's picking up a lot of drums. So, like, I'm running the drums for the reverb pedal and just doing, like, weird feedback stuff with it, you know. Oh, it's yeah. just, like, some stoner electronica crap. But <laughs> but it's, it's actually fun, and it, it sounds really cool. So... Yeah, so there's been a bunch of that. Like, so definitely the Sonic elements is coming into play. I'm kind of making everybody play with pedals and, and uh, you know everybody wants to do it. that's the thing, you know what I mean it's like, like playing like you know four guys improvising just acoustically is, is one thing. but like if you can get some sonic stuff going on it too, it's, it becomes more uh, compelling I think to the audience.
0: Up until about a year ago uh here in this town where i live i was the morning host of this indie rock station and so um i've listened to your bass playing a lot over the last few years because of two records uh let me get by by Tedesky trucks and also black star by david bowie both of which we Mm -hmm. played a ton of um and i mean those are two very very different records uh (laughs) sonically and in almost every way and i kind of wonder are you on are you in all these different projects because of your adaptability or because people want the particularities of your sound? I, I can't tell if that's an obnoxious question or not, but like do you always need to sound like Tim LaFave when you play, or is it that folks know, well, I can suggest to Tim these things and he'll find a way to get there. I, how does that how do you feel like that works? And I apologize if that seems like a, a ignorant or obnoxious question, but
1: it's not at all. No, because I, I think I come at it like, what happens is like it comes through your filter no matter what. Yeah, people 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 tell me I like, oh, I just sound like me, and I and I actually honestly, honestly it's it's happening because I'm trying not to. I'm trying to sound anonymous, or I'm trying to sound like, you know, I'm trying to sound like Jamerson, or I'm trying to sound like Willie Weeks or Daryl Jones, or you know, what I mean, like that's yeah. not all. when I was playing with Wayne Krantz back in the day, I was like I was just trying to filter Victor Bailey and Daryl Jones, and sometimes Marcus Miller, you know. I was like, yeah, I'm going to play. And I literally was playing straight up Daryl Jones, like, but nobody ever, <laughs> they ever you know, they thought, it, they thought it was like, I was inventing the shit. And I'm like, totally, I'm not. I'm just really trying to imitate Daryl Jones. I'm, I'm, I'm being straight up with you. So like, you know, if they're calling me, you know, like some people are calling me, I, I think people, A, think I'll do a good job. and won't, for the most part, won't mess the stuff up, but, but, you know, it ends up, being a part of that is, yeah, I guess I have a sound. Even though I never really strove for I didn't strive for that, you know what I mean? I just kind of was just kind of playing and trying to play the music right and blah, blah, blah. But it ends up, you end up getting a sound because everything you do is your filter, you know what I mean? And is that true yeah. to this
0: day? I mean, if you step, when you step into the studio right now, do you still feel like there's not a particular, well, here's this thing that I do. You're still, is, is each experience kind of fresh and do you feel like you're able to approach it that way?
1: well I think I think if you say well here's the thing I do I mean there's, there's a little bit of that you can bring that into a, a situation but I think that's the death knell of your career it's like, here's what I do and that's is the only thing I do you know what I mean fair and enough I, I, I like money and I like people calling me for, to work so like I think being able to, to spread yourself out a little bit is always valuable you know what I mean yeah um, so like you know if, you, if, you, if somebody calls you to play a rock track it's like, bring in distortion pedals and bring picks and round mountain string basses and try to sound like a legit rock guy you know what I mean it's not that hard you just have to kind of, well, no, you just have to kind of, you know, picture it and kind of make yourself hear it. You know what I mean? That's uh, that, that's my thing.
0: Um, I mentioned the uh, uh, the David Bowie record, um, Black Star. And, of course, there's also uh, the the 2018 version of Never Let Me Down um, that we could, right. we could talk about. But I wanted to, uh, since Donnie McCaslin has been on this show a number of times and we've talked about uh, including the albums that you've been on, um, yeah. I just wanted to ask because I'm not sure – Uh, For folks, for the kind of more just like straight jazz people who listen to this show, uh, they may not all realize that that band is the band on Bowie's final record. And it's kind of an interesting story about how that became the case. So I know you've told the story before, but if you would indulge me, would you mind just telling folks how that happened?
1: Yeah, as far as I know, um, basically, Maria Schneider... Uh, did that track, did that Sue in a season of change, a season of crime, I'm sorry so yeah, she hired, I mean Donnie's a soloist in in her band, so for that track in particular they wanted a a drummer who could play drum and bass is is what it sounded like to me Uh, I actually got called for it too but but I I was out with Tedesky Truck, so I couldn't do it, Uh, so I think generally they wanted to lean in that, like a less acoustic direction, but it ended up being, because they jamsed and killed it It's not. it totally sounds great um but I'm just saying, like you know, they, they were trying to get that direction going on, so they hired Mark. And then uh, I think what happened was she was working on that the something fields, the Thompson Fields record. She was starting to write and do the stuff for that. So I, I believe David had asked her to do a record, and she said no. She said I I got to do the Thompson Fields record. So she did that, and to, I think at the same time she goes, well, here, check out this Donny McCaslin CD. You know, then it all kind of went from there. She, he gets Donny CD. He likes that Praia Grande track that that uh, Dave Benny wrote. And, uh, and so then he came to the 55 bar, heard his live and I think that's what sold him. So, you know, then from there it was, it was history, just kind of matter of setting up times and, and making it happen. So.
0: And I, I know, I mean, he's generally fairly well known for kind of knowing what he wants in the studio and, and causing it to happen, even when he's working with, you know, some of the famous producers and, and composers that he's worked with over his life. But, um, I wonder from the point of view, you guys had played together a lot. I mean, this was not like, this was not a a pickup group assembled for the studio session. I mean, this was like a really functional band. Was there some amount of having to kind of like, I know he hired you because of what he heard. So how much of what you guys normally do applied in the Bowie situation, I guess is maybe the way to ask that question.
1: I mean, I would say as a percentage, maybe 10 to, well, you know, obviously the Sue version we did on the record obviously was full on what we do. Sure. Uh, I mean, besides that, maybe an extra 10, 20%. I mean, you know, it's kind of, everybody kind of put their pop hat on, you know, like some people have more experience than others with that. But, you know, I kind of, I kind of played it simple and played what he wanted, not what he wanted, but like what was in the demos. And then what, and I think he wanted, he always wanted us to do more than was on the demos. You know what I mean? So like that was, we'd do one take that was sort of conservative and then we'd do another take that had what you basically heard on the record. Like Mark and I were done in two takes. So like a lot of it, he'd, he'd want us to go more nuts basically. You know, like, but like, for instance, like Blackstar, like there was the the first, the first part of that is like you know that's pretty much scripted in the demo. Like what well, that email, he emailed us demos that he would do at home. So the drum pattern, the bass sound, sort of I sort of Tony lemoned it up a little bit, like put an octave <laughs> split on it. But you know, but basically the drum patterns, what what was programmed, and then you know. And the chords and all that stuff so that kind of went down as it, as it was but he also wanted us to like kind of get free and then go into the the middle part of it which is you know obviously gorgeous and and from there from the middle part to the end it's like yeah i mean he's put it on demo it's like you know something happened today you know like that stuff and i was like well i like herbie flowers and justin mildell johnson i was like so i tried to do this pick stuff and it was like i started like really doing it and and you know so we did that piece and then we kind of morphed it into the end piece and I started doing my, my Pino Palladino and you know Larry Graham eighth note behind the beat imitation and, and you know I actually I was like I came in after that the take was done I was like and I was just expecting them to say yeah why don't you go out and punch that and do that take again but they, they said nothing so like <laughs> there was an example of like I totally did my shit I totally did my shit and like they like you know you know I don't know if that's what they expected or wanted but that's what they got and you know I was like, well, here, you know, sometimes, sometimes when you're recording and you don't know what they want, just kind of just go for stuff, and sometimes, sometimes it works, you know. That's kind of one of those times that it did. Now,
0: if someone wanted to learn about the history of the bass, literally just writing down every name you mentioned in this interview so far would be a pretty decent way to start, because we're probably up to like ten different bass players that you mentioned, and I get the feeling that. Um, I remember, uh, I probably have mentioned this on this show before, but when I started to get serious about writing poetry, a much older poet said to me, if you want to get serious about writing, the key to that is reading. Go out and read everything you can get your hands on. And I, I feel just from listening to you talk, like perhaps you have taken the same approach to bass playing, that the key to playing is listening. And you, that if it sounds to me like you have absorbed a whole lot over these years of your study and, and professional career.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I'm 50, so obviously I've heard, I've heard a lot of music. You know, I mean, I've 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 also I, I'm not one of those like music nuts who, pardon me, I I don't have Spotify. I'm not listening to new stuff every day. I just I can't process it all. Honestly, I just I just try to find stuff I like, either old or new, and you know try to learn something from it. You know, yeah. I mean, I've I've gone back into like, I went back on a on a big coal train kick again. You know, like a, a couple months ago, yeah. You know, just, just things keep coming back, and and you know, as you get older, it, it hits you a different way, and it's it's cool to absorb it. You know what I mean?
0: But there's something like you you responded to that by saying, well, yes, I'm 50. I've listened to a lot of music. Fair, but I mean, a lot of people have listened to a lot of music. I mean, right. most. I would say it's fair to say most people have listened to a lot of music and have been doing it for most of their lives. But there's right. a difference between that and kind of seeing the inner workings of the music that you're listening to, like understanding what's happening inside there. And uh, I guess I wonder like how much do you feel like that? Is there's some kind of active thing that you do when you listen to some music as opposed to others? Or are you other are times when you're like, well, I really want to figure out what's happening in this song. Or is that not,
1: is that just not necessary anymore? I mean, I don't, tend to get too scientific about it anymore unless I elicit some parts I have to learn, sure. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, and if you can't hear it right or something, you have to ask somebody. But more or less, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what I even do anymore. I just, it just kind of hits me in a certain way. and I. Uh, yeah, uh, that's a good question. I can't even answer it, actually. I don't even know.
0: And it, But it oh. sounds like, at least to me, that earlier in your career, and I guess this is probably how it works for a lot of people, just from hearing you talk, like there were times when you were... Really figuring out what the basis that you like we're doing on particular songs because you know you'll say like I, I'm doing my P- Pino Paladino thing or my you know my Daryl Jones oh, yeah, or whatever yeah. well, well,
1: but I also had a lot of chances to apply it you know what I mean it's like so when you heard it it's like oh shit okay cool like like when um, the whole D'Angelo Voodoo thing came out like I happened to be I, this is the time I was working with Till Bronner the German guy yeah uh, and and uh, incredible trumpet player and, and artist but anyway like so you know this is like 2004. He did it. He, he he got together with a uh, Salen Karamura, who's, a, who's a who's a German uh, DJ producer guy, and they started writing songs that was sort of like voodoo. So like I get, and then they hired me to play on the record. So I got to do some actually put it into practice. You know what I mean? Like pretty quickly after that record came out, I was like, you know, because everybody's mind was blown obviously by that. So, but like having a chance to actually apply it is is a, is a thing. It's just like you know when I was in heavily into Daryl and Marcus and, and Victor and and the. In the you know mid to late 90s and blah, blah blah that happens to be when i was also starting to play with wayne krantz so i could apply it all the time and practice it and kind of make it a thing you know what i mean yeah so, so that is
0: a that's a pretty big difference then from like just the average taking in of music is that you're actually getting to reproduce the ideas that you're hearing
1: <laughs> yeah I and mean, you know like i said you know like and i'm sitting there going most is a straight piano Paladino," <laughs> like and then to somebody else it's like oh it sounds like you and it's like okay you know i accept it and i'm flattered i just but you know, <laughs> was not for the. I wasn't trying to sound like me, right? You know what I mean? <laughs>
0: That's hilarious. There's I was a, trying to sound like him. You're like the 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 most Buddhist of all bass players, or something. There's just there's no self involved <laughs> involved in this at all. It's beautiful.
1: Well, I mean, isn't it, but isn't that the point of music? Like, you know, you take I the self so. of it. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of, kind of the most valuable thing about it, you know.
0: But it may be the point, but I also, man, I sure do think it's the steepest hill to climb, too. I mean, I it, yeah. it's way easier to fall back on. And I know, I, I mean, obviously you said, and I think rightly so, here's what I do is the death knell. I think that's very fair. But here's what I do is, I mean, I think it's what separates, like, I, I play music, uh, you know, all the time, professionally, but at a level way below yours. And part of that is because there's, I think there's a place where if you're able to kind of transcend that, well, this is kind of what I do, there are more levels available to you. And if like, I kind of know where I'm at, like, you know, I'm a decent local pro and that's about it. And I kind of have like a bag of tricks that I fall back on a lot. And I feel like what you're talking about, at least it sounds to me like a place beyond that, like where there's there's a time where you can kind of let all that stuff go. And I don't, I just don't think I've ever kind of gotten to where that is.
1: I think you know, like as a as a producer though, because I'm sort of limited. In, you know, I would I wouldn't go produce like a Latin jazz record. You know what I mean? But sure. As a producer, you have to say, well, yeah, this is what I do. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like it's pretty obvious, like where I, where I lean. You know, if you listen to Rachel's like, I'm also producing this band from with uh, with Falcon actually. Um, this band from Asheville called The Broadcast, and it's like, yeah, this is what I do. You know what I mean? Like I neat and stuff up and blah blah. You know what I mean? It's like like I, there's a definite thing that I do instead of yeah which which is identifiable yeah at this point I, I want it to be very identifiable and make me millions <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> in, the, in the long term but you know it's just it's just one of those things but like that's that's some place where you can define what you do I just think playing wise it's like you know you're cutting off a lot of possibilities if you just you know, Stick to your guns and what's what's the word for that? I forget what the word is, but yeah. You know, you just you're just shutting off stuff to yourself and you're shutting off stuff to the to, to what's possible in music, you know.
0: look at what you're doing right now does it bear any resemblance to the picture you had of your career like when you were you know 18 19 20 or even
1: 30 well you know I always wanted to be successful I wanted to be known and I and I uh I just didn't know how it was going to happen yeah you know it's all it's always curves in the the path that you didn't you didn't think were going to happen so it's you know the the journey has been a different than I would have thought anyway you know like when I moved to New York I thought I was going to play acoustic jazz you know <laughs> like everybody else yeah i just like took a severe left turn but it's been it's been amazing and like you know uh it just kind of happened the way it happened and i'm happy about it and i'm getting to where i want to get anyway professionally so it's 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 cool you know it's nothing really to complain about you just have to kind of that's another one like you know i had no expectations it's like you know well you you trying to sound like you or it's like no i'm just trying to work <laughs> really yeah you know and it just, you end up going down the path of, you know, like, I'll, I'll tell you one thing, I didn't ever think, like, to, for me uh, to be on the Bowie record, never, never mind 2, is like, nah, I mean, I would have never even imagined that, you know.
0: And I'm it's happy to hear things. you say that, because I, to me, that's like a huge deal. I mean, I, like, David Bowie is one of the great songwriters, the great creators of Sonic Landscapes, the yeah. great reimaginers of modern rock and pop music of the 20th and early 21st centuries. And so, like, and there's a limited, like, you, could, you couldn't you could have them all over for dinner, but you could have them all over for a barbecue, group of people who've been on a David Bowie record. Yeah. And you're in that group now. And to me, when I, when I think about that, especially because I knew, I mean, I don't know you well, but I knew at least a little bit personally and in some cases much better, everybody on that record. And I was like, all these guys that I've, like, actually for the most part met or Hung out with for some period of time are on a David Bowie record. That kind of blew my mind. And so I, it, was it like that for you? I mean, it sounds like there was at least some of that in there for you.
1: Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, but you know, honestly, we were, when we we're doing the record, yes. Okay, yeah, it's David Bowie. But it's, it, it's just, it was far from a circus, though. It was just, you know, it was just us, the band, Kevin Killen, Tony Visconti, David, Coco Schwab, and and uh, I can't remember the, his nutritionist security guard guy's name, but. That was it it wasn't it was no circus. it was just like work. We was just going to work doing a record for a guy who, who's obviously a legend but he happens to be also a tremendously nice guy. so you know, it was just kind of like okay, pretty goal oriented but the but the, at the aftermath was that that's what blew my mind. blew my mind it, yeah,' it just like you know, you know, because all of a sudden like we're we're like semi celebrities, and man you know, and then we joined that fraternity of people who work with It's you know, yeah, it's nothing you can't predict stuff like that.
0: And I look oh, yeah. at like Donny McCaslin's tour now and it feels like it's a whole other kind of thing from the last pre-Bowie tour too. Even like even image-wise. I mean, I just I feel like some sense of okay, we passed through this veil and on the other side of it is yet another level that you know, you don't know about it unless you get to it. I, it just feels like that experience is informing I, things.
1: I, I, no, totally. I'm 100. It's it's really fascinating to see. You know, because obviously, I know these guys really well. It's just funny to see. It's not funny. It's just it's just what what has happened since that since the Bowie thing. Like everybody's got managers now. Like Mark's career is like you know he's got his projects going. He's like he's so everybody's everybody's like kind of like you know gotten way more serious about their careers. You know what I mean? Like it's, we're not just showing up in t-shirts and jeans anymore. And like you know. <laughs> he's playing tunes yeah, it's great you know like, and, and donnie's new record you know to me like it's almost totally fully realized as a as a is almost a pop record you know what i mean yeah and it's it's not but it ain't smooth jazz it's like it's it's definitely rock it's definitely some you know he, well you know he hired steve wall to produce it and mix it and and you know so that takes it to like every every song on the record has a sonic space and like you know it's just the, those are the kind of things that you learn like like as it sometimes jazz guys will just say, oh yeah record it and you record a whole record in a day and, and you're done with it, whereas this thing took time and it took you know like some imagination and and, and it sounds like it it sounds like a million bucks I love it you know, so so he's you know so Donny's getting closer to like what he really wants to do which is you know some kind of fully realized more pop thing you know what I mean and it was it was immediately like because he started putting vocals on the records we were doing like while like right after Bowie passed, like after Blackstar came out, it's like, well, guys, you know, he started leaning in that direction. But then, you know, it takes, sometimes it just takes more than, than, uh, you know, well, it's just wing it. You can't just wing stuff like that. You know what I mean?
0: You reference being on not just one Bowie album, but two. And uh, that's a reference to Never Let Me Down, which is a like a reeves Gabriel's Tim Machine era Bowie record that's now being reimagined. Can you say something about that?
1: Yeah, that was, that was a... Uh, it was it was it almost as equally exciting to me. It was not equally exciting to me. I mean, I you know obviously because Bowie's not alive and this record kind of fell by the wayside. That never let me down record. So like it, you know to to the fans' eyes, it's not as exciting as as some of the other records. But uh, to me, it's it's very exciting because like I, I I feel like I'm Bowie fraternity now because I was playing with guys who toured with him. You know, like like Blackstar was its own thing. I mean, it was it was like a whole new band for Bowie, a whole new concept. Whereas this is like going back and, and revisiting. Some of his old music, and and I did it with people who, you know, I, they they asked me to play bass on it, and it's and it's with people who toured with him, and for so like, the, the I have been saying like, you know, the OGs, the Bowie OGs, and so like to be accepted as that fraternity to me is incredibly flattering, and and you know, so that's what that's what I'm clinging to on that on that whole thing, and the music is, you know, I, I like playing rock, is it's, it's more basically a straight rock record, I got to do a little effect stuff on it, but uh, you know. So that was, that was like very flattering to me. So and how, how, how did it. that
0: come about? Like why did they get the idea to, to revisit this?
1: Uh, Bowie, here? it was under Bowie's du- direction actually. Oh, okay. I, thought, I think when they were, yeah, they were doing Next Day or something like that. Mario McDulty was the engineer and I think he did some kind of remix for, for David of a song off that record. So, you know, so David said, you, know, you can Google it. It's like he said in the press a few times that that's a record he regretted. So he just was asleep at the wheel for that one. So, gotcha. uh, you know, so he asked Mario McDulty. and said, well, it, I don't know exactly how it went down from there, but, but, you know, Mario McDelty ended up being in charge of it. So, you know, he, he got the, the tracks, the pro tool sessions, you know, the originally, it was done the tape originally. So they transferred all the pro tools. And then, you know, he started stripping stuff away, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of stuff on, on out there about it, but gotcha. you know, yeah. So it's just basically, so then we just had this sort of, you know, Sterling Campbell, you know, because he was like Bowie's last touring drummer. He kind of steered the direction of the bass and drum groove ideas a lot. So I kind of, you know, and obviously he knew Bowie better than I did. So I I went with his direction pretty hard, you know, and blended a little bit with what I would do. But but for the most part, yeah, just, you know, because I just respect those guys so much. I've watched so many videos of Sterling playing with Bowie, like all the, all the 2000s and 2000, about 2006, like that's all Sterling. And then, you know, if you listen to Earthling enough, that's all Reeves Gabrels. So it's just like, and David Torn's all over next day. And it's just, you know, just one icon after another. Yeah. Album, so it's really awesome. <laughs>
0: yeah, he never <laughs> yeah. he never lacked for guys in the band. That was for sure.
1: No, no. Especially the guitar chairs. To yeah. Catch. My guest for this
0: show has been Tim LaFave, a bassist, producer, and uh, a guy whose work I've been following for a long time. And it's a thrill to finally have you on the show. Thanks so much for doing it, Tim. I really appreciate it.
1: Jason, you're God. Thank you so much. <laughs>
0: show thanks to the respect sextet for the theme music they're online at respectsextet.com dave rabel designed the logo you can find the show on social media at facebook.com slash the jazz session or on twitter at jazz j-a-z-z-s-e-s-h J-A-Z-Z-S-S-E-S-H. i personally am on twitter and instagram at jason d crane don't forget to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You'd be surprised what a difference it makes when people rate and review the show. It really helps other folks find it. And don't forget to become a supporter at patreon.com slash the jazz session. That's patreo ncom slash the jazz session. New episodes come out on the 1st and the 15th of each month, so I'll see you back here in February for another conversation about jazz on the jazz session.
1: everybody. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye.